Hello and welcome to AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. I'm your host, John S. Today we'll be speaking with my friend Ben B. from Lincoln, Nebraska. We'll be talking about steps one and two from a secular perspective and hopefully build bridges between the non-believer and the believer in AA. I think you'll enjoy this very interesting discussion. All right, Ben. Good to have you here, my friend from uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. How you doing? Good, John. It's good to talk to you. And uh, today I would like to talk about the first three steps. Um, you know, I, I want to write about the steps here on AA Beyond Belief. I want to have more of a discussion about the steps. I want to hopefully bridge a gap um, that might might exist between the believer and the non-believer when it comes to the steps to show that there really isn't that much difference between our approach other than, you know, the belief in a, in a deity, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you start by just kind of giving me a little bit of background on your experience with the steps, what they, how you were introduced to them, what they, how you feel about them today, and then we'll just kind of go into the, to it from there. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, I came into AA when I was 32. Um, I'd gotten a DUI and was required to go to meetings once a week. Um, and I, I look back now and I, I feel like it was really fortunate that I went to the meeting I chose to go to that once a week because it was a pretty laid back meeting. Um, it wasn't until I was about four or five years sober that I realized there was more fundamental or rigid meetings out there really. Um, mm-hmm. And after I was sober about two years, I went and uh, took training to become a drug and alcohol counselor. So I I felt like I was allowed my own opinion on the steps from the very get-go. And it, it wasn't mm-hmm. until I started going to those more rigid meetings where it was like, wow, I, it's not okay to think this way or it's not okay to have your own interpretation of the of the steps. But, you know, the first step for me especially is it's just admit. You know, I look at the action verb of it. It's just admit. Um, if you're in a court of law and you're guilty of something and it's a fact, you just need to admit that it's true. And with the help of being around other people, I came to realize that, yes, I admit I do have a drinking problem. And that wasn't the first time I had done that. I can look back to some journals that I had written in when I was 23. And again, I came in when I was 32 to AA. Um, and I, some of them, I just flat out write, I am an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And, um, during that period of my life, I would take, you know, two week breaks, then followed by a month break or who knows what. And I, I didn't ever, um, it wasn't like I was trying to drink like a normal person. It's just, I would eventually fall back into it. It wasn't like a conscious thought like, Oh, I'm going to drink like a normal person. I mean, I'm sure I would right. tell myself, I'm sure I would tell myself that, you know, just take it easy this time, then just be careful this time. And, and usually when I would start drinking again after a break, I would drink two or three or four or set some limit and, you know, nothing bad would happen. And then slowly that would become more and more. And, uh, next thing you know, I'd get drunk one night. Usually it would be say something very awful to somebody I cared about. And then I'd be at that place again where it's like, Ben, this is an issue. You got to do something. And I'd take a break again. And then eventually I'd start drinking again, but I never Mm -hmm. felt like it was this, conscious fight where it's like, well, you should be able to drink normal or this or that. I'm sure those thoughts right. were there, but it was just, 
they eventually gave in and did that. Okay, so is that is that when you think you actually experienced first the first step is when you gave in? So there's something different that happened from just knowing that you were an alcoholic to to. Yeah, um, I think what happened was when I got the DUI when I was 32, it kept me involved. Um, I had to go to AA once a week, and that kept me involved in reminding me that I had a problem because I was around other people who all of a sudden. Um, all those times I would take breaks, like in late college, it'd be like, I'd wish all my friends well that night. Oh, everybody go have fun tonight. I'll just be home. And I would mm -hmm. sit there and I'd just feel so lonely and alone. And so I think going to meetings helped me realize that um, there was tons of people sitting around probably feeling the same way I, I felt on that very night when I stayed home and felt alone and thought, gosh, I'm the only idiot who can't control this. And so... Um, I don't I don't know how I exactly feel about how people just automatically get referred to AA through the courts. Right. But in my case, it worked out really well because I think that year of having to go to meetings mm -hmm. helped me realize and solidify the fact that then this is an ongoing issue and it's not something you're just going to be able to manage um, by yourself. And that I found, and we'll talk about this more when we talk uh -huh. about two and three, but I found that there was a benefit to leaning on other people and taking in their input and all of us getting together and connecting on some level. Yeah. You know, Ben, um, it's very interesting that when you, when you talk about these steps, when, when you were talking about your experience, it's really not that different from mine. Okay. Here, here's what I, I went through. I, I, um, for me, step one is just when I got to a point where I admitted I had a problem with drinking, my life was a mess. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you know what? We don't we don't just experience that in isolation. We actually experience immediately after that, I think, if if we're in the you know, we we, we believe that we can be helped and we ask we go and ask for help. So I I think for me, when I was drinking, like you, I knew I had a problem. I mean I had considered getting help before, but I, I never really um I never really um, thought about it or did anything about it or accepted it or really realized how serious of a problem it was, I guess. Um, and I had like three DUIs, each one a year apart. And I, I know my first DUI, I kind of blew off. The second DUI, I thought, okay, now I really need to try to learn how to control my drinking. And I tried that. And then after the third DUI, I realized, okay, game's over. I can't. I can't control I can't control my drinking. So I realized, you know, I, I need help and that that's when I went to went to AA. So maybe in a sense I was kinda like you too, where I did know I was an alcoholic. I knew I had a problem drinking, but I never really could admit it until mm -hmm. I was ready to admit it. Until yeah. things got bad enough. I guess I had to have that unmanageable life that forced me into that admission. Yeah, I mean, we talk about rock bottom and all that stuff, and as much as sometimes I despise uh, the way it seems like people want your story to fit the story of the book so much that it almost puts peer pressure on us to make our story sound exactly like that. I yeah. I have to the the credit it does go to AA because I think in those early years or early time it does give structure to your story to yeah. help you see the pattern. And I, I got to be honest too. I had another DUI before I got that second DUI. So I was kind of mm -hmm. too. I, I got the first one um, 
And I just, I really, I had the lightest slap on the wrist. I got diversion for it, and I, yeah. I blew it. Same two, here. three, three, um, trying to drive home two and a half hours. Um, uh-huh. So, I mean, I look back at that, and that's insane. But um, yep. I got diversion on that, and it was such a light slap on the hand. And yep. then slowly, at first it was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink and drive anymore. First it was, I'm, I'm not going to drink for a while. Then it was, I'm not going to drink and drive at all. And then right. it became... I'm not going to uh, drink and drive drunk. I'll just have a few and make sure I'm yeah. not that drunk. And then sooner or later, I was just driving drunk all the time again. And that, yeah, uh, yeah. You talk about that Jekyll and Hyde thing, and it, it was—it's not me. It's like my even when I was an active drinker, my life was not lived in a way to where like I would put people at risk, like knowingly. But it's like that's yeah. that insanity of alcoholism because that's what I did every time I drove home drunk. Oh, me too. And you know. I realized, I guess, finally, um, when I got to AA, I was horrified because I realized I I didn't seem to be capable of not driving after I got drunk. I didn't I didn't have the sanity about me to make the rational decision that I've had too much to drink and I can't drive. Sometimes, Ben, mm-hmm. I was blacked out when I was driving. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh yeah. So well, and it makes that, 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 that did scare me. From a science standpoint, too, it makes total sense. The first part that's affected by your drinking is your frontal part of your brain, and that's where all your decision-making and your whatever you want to call your morals and all that lies. And then if you start to gain a physical dependence on alcohol, that part of your brain is very close to where your instincts are. So mm-hmm. as alcohol climbs that totem pole of your instincts, you're also got, you've developed tolerance, so you're able to drink more and more, so you're numbing out that frontal part of that brain. So all of a sudden you're acting from that instinct part of your brain and the frontal part of your brain is numbed out. So it can't tell you like, hey, this isn't a good idea. You know, so you're constantly acting out of instinct. So it makes complete mm-hmm. scientific sense why it feels like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And it's like, holy cow, I would never do that in my right mind. Yep. So that step, step one, as far as I'm concerned, um, was an experience that I had. It wasn't necessarily a thing that I did. It wasn't like if you if you say you were how did you work step one? Well, I guess I did some things after that experience. I mean, I had I the group I went to we read the big book, we read the twelve and twelve. I mean, we read it um, repeatedly. Um, my, what what we would do? This sounds insane, but this is actually the life that I led. Um, my sponsor would have me read um, one chapter of the big book every day for thirty days, and if I were to miss a day, I'd have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. And so I started like with um, the doctor's opinion. I read it every day for 30 days. And then you go into, what is it, there is a solution and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And so you you read the first part all the way through, I think, more about alcoholism. And that's that's step one. And then you mm-hmm. go through and do the same thing with the 12 and 12. It's quite a process. <laughs> yeah. And you have to sit down with your sponsor and you highlight and everything like that. So anyway, it's, it's, it, it sounds like BS now, but I know there's a lot of people out there that still do this. But that's well, basically does, what happened. Work. It does work that? for some people. It does work for some people. And my, but my experience was none of that. Like I went through it on my own and talked with my sponsor about some questions I had. But yeah. he was pretty laid back about everything. And, you know, I, I, never, I never had that point where I was like, I never thought I had to think of the book as something I – had to believe word for word at all, or like I had to learn something from it. I was more encouraged to 
bring my own experience to it and 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 uh, see what I could get out of it. And so I've, I guess I've been doing this gymnastics, mental gymnastics thing from mm-hmm. the get-go. But I never felt bad about it until I got around those rigid people at other meetings. But you know what? You said something that I agree with. It does work for some people. And you know what? It worked for me. I was sober for 25 years doing the program that way. And, boy, the way I feel about it, I, I'm, I'm kind of coming around to um, changing the way I feel about things. When I first stopped believing in God, which is about when I was 25 years sober, I guess, I um, started going to meetings and, and, and talking about the program through this as an atheist and immediately started getting pushed back and being corrected. And when I had that experience, I decided I, I hated the big book and I hated the 12 and 12 uh, because people were using those against me. But now, as I'm thinking about the steps again, I'm almost glad that I had the experience of getting to know the books as well as I do because it gives me some historical perspective and it also gives me the opportunity to build the bridge between the atheist, the secular person, and the believer when it comes to the steps. Absolutely. I, you know, I've been, uh, the period of time lately, I've been a little more frustrated than I probably should be, but I've always been trying to build the bridge. I think that's what I, that's what I was trying to do when I didn't always know. I think sometimes I was always dancing around my words at meetings and I don't know that that Mm -hmm. was necessarily healthy, but, um, you know, it's just a it's just a different dialect that we're speaking. I know some of our more hardcore atheists and agnostics probably don't like to hear that, but it's just it's a different it's just a slightly different translation is what I see. And That's exactly how I see it too. It's something in the book just because it specifically says something. I I'm able to look at it and say, well, what's really working in there? You know, what's what's right. actually working? And when we talk about step two and three, I'll say more about that too. And that step one, when we'll, I guess we can conclude step one now because I think step one is probably the one step that that we can all agree on in AA, whether we're a believer or a non-believer. Even, even the militant atheists who hate the steps agree on step one. That's the one oh. thing we have to do. We have to admit, acknowledge, accept that we have a problem, that our life's a mess. We yep. have a problem with we're alcoholics. Yep. Can I uh, add one more little thing? Some of the stuff with the like the powerlessness and the unmanageability, it's like as I see it, it's those extreme words. I don't know if they do us favors in AA. Um, like you uh, were saying, the language of that time was so extreme, and the the big book is riddled with uh, what you learn as a counselor is about that rigid binary, all or nothing thinking, right or wrong, unmanageable yeah. or manageable, God is or God isn't. And to me, that thinking itself is part of the problem. So. If I'm working with yeah. a newcomer and they like they look at that word unmanageable, it's like, well, my life wasn't completely unmanageable. You know, it's like some things were going okay, some weren't. And I'll just say to them, I'll go, well, yeah, but can you admit that you weren't doing the best job managing your life and that maybe alcohol had a little bit to play there, play in that role? And they'll say, you know, yeah, I, I can admit that. I wonder why they even put that part in. I wonder why they even put the unmanageable life in. I mean, it's kind of unnecessary. All you could you could just left that step off of you could just left it saying I'm. I'm powerless over alcohol. I do that I'm powerless over alcohol. I think at that time they all got together and they were all pretty low bottom drunks and they all had that, you know, 
and this is where we get in the meetings where you get people say, you have to hit rock bottom. You got to hit rock bottom. And it's just, I just, I just yeah. don't believe that. You don't have to hit rock You're bottom. You're right. And some people don't have, like, I did have some bad, serious problems, um, legal problems, losing yeah. jobs. They were obviously alcohol-related problems, but not everybody has that. Some people... Right. You know, go on and get advanced degrees. They have happy marriages. They have, you know, and, and they have all the success that you could ever imagine, but still be alcoholics. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, and they have a hard time saying, "Where, where where's my life unmanageable?" And um, so they have to find some way. Basically, if you know, I'm sure that everybody realizes if you're if you're drinking becomes an addiction. Something in your life is missing. You're you're not present somewhere, and maybe you don't even right. realize it in the very beginning. But there's something in your life that you're not doing that you probably would be doing if it weren't for your drinking. Yeah, and our book says our drinking is just a solution. I mean, maybe the rigidity gets a lot of people in there in the extreme on some level, but I just worry that it scares more people off than it than it than it helps. I don't. Yeah, know. that's my fear. Especially that's now, fear. I think you're right because I mean. I, I see this – I've only had like one example, a young woman in her 20s who hated the word powerless, and she was in a meeting talking about that. And I was like, it's okay. you know, Don't don't worry about it. You don't have to use that word. Use your own word. And she doesn't like labels either, like calling herself an alcoholic. I said, that's okay. You don't have to do that. You know, yeah. um, In AA, you only have to have a desire to stop drinking. That's the only requirement for membership. Um but of course, when she's in a meeting, everyone goes around and says, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. But she didn't like the labels, and she didn't like the powerlessness. I almost was kind of wondering if it was a generational thing, because she liked, she said, you know, I like to be empowered. I'd like to take response, personal responsibility for myself. I said, well, that's, you can do that. That's what it's all about. But yeah, you could just – you don't need to use that word. Uh, people can use whatever they word I think they want to to describe whatever it is that they have to say in step one, which is basically just admitting you have a problem, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't even think the other part has to continue, but that, that gives some people some validity. I do think it is a little bit of a generational thing, and I think I don't know. I think people are more aware of how they can be led astray by the powers that be these days too. So it's. I think of modern meetings almost as just bridging that gap between this archaic language of the big book and putting it in some real world terms today. You know another difference too, Ben, between um, the people. Like, see, I was a young person. I was in my twenties when I came to AA, but we didn't have the internet back then. So oh, yeah. young people today, before they go to an AA meeting, they start researching on online, and they're going to read the. They're going to hear the pro and the con of AA, where we. I never got that, and they're going to read the critics who who will argue about, hey, powerless over alcohol, this means you can't do anything about it. And and they and so they're getting that information before they even come to the meeting. So I think that they they have more information than I had as a twenty five year old in nineteen eighty eight. Right. Well I'll even say in meetings sometimes too that that the only th- I mean, yes we have a physical addiction that makes it feel like it's impossible to drink. But the truth is we can not drink. We just don't think we can. The part of our very thing that's addicted is our brain, and that's what's telling you you need alcohol. I mean, that's the thing that's physically yeah. addicted. And so we do have that power, and I feel this is where the God thing comes in for me and it annoys me. We have that power by leaning on each other. It's like a very human connection thing. 
I mean, yes, some of us need medical intervention, take Ativan or something while you're withdrawing. I mean, obviously we are powerless in that moment physiologically. It's like our body needs alcohol or else it feels like it's going to die and can die. But right. it's the perception side of it is we can stop. But the the thing that's great about AA is that we learn to get outside ourselves, lean on each other, meet together. That is that part. And, you know, where they say probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. I think it is a human power. And it, oh, absolutely it's it is. We don't, we don't think we have access to it, but we do. And that's the power of yeah. the alcoholism and the denial and you don't need anything else and all that stuff. It, it's, as it's I not try true. to build bridges to those, those believers, I, I want them to build a bridge to me because un- unfortunately that, that line in there about there will be no human power at times that can help you, people use that against us saying that you have to have a supernatural power because if you don't, there is no human power at times that can help you. Well, Well, from our perspective, we only have human power. And so we disagree with that, and we have a right, right. to disagree with that. And I, I think that that's if they, ha- you know, I, I can respect their view that they believe that there's a, a God who um, they have a personal relationship with that they can rely on when they can't rely on anyone else. I respect and val- that belief of theirs. I just mm-hmm. don't happen to have it, and they right. have to respect that. I like what my friend Beth said when I was at a workshop. Uh, Beth from Phoenix. She was. She said she was an attorney, and she said it says probably no human power could have relieved her alcoholism. She said probable cause from well, a legal standpoint is only fifty-one percent probability, so there's a forty-nine percent chance of human power. Or that's was there was a human power. I really like what she said about that, and it's it's, it's the act of getting out of ourselves and leaning on other people that helps. And from a counselor yeah. standpoint, and from emotional health wise. The thing that concerns me with the God thing is it's like people's way to deny their connection with other people, their need for other people. You know, the people yeah. in meetings who make it sound like God was the only thing they needed to lean on to get sober. It almost feels like it almost feels like the person who thanks God for the lung transplant they got and doesn't say a word to their doctor. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. look around the room and tell everybody else, Thanks for being there for me too. I don't care if you want to yeah. credit God, but don't deny the fact that it's not everybody else around here that's helping. And if the God exists, I think he wants us to love and care for each other and lean on each other. Now, I don't believe that, but I would think if no. he did, he would want us to love each other and give each other credit for helping. Right, that maybe he put a bunch of people here together so that we could help each other out. <laughs> but yeah. um, anyway, but, you know, I'm, I I used to hear people say, and I, don't, I never, I haven't heard this that much anymore, but in the beginning, I used to hear people say that God works through other people. I don't hear that anymore. Now it's just God does this for me. Well, I hear it up here. I hear it up here. Both of you them. hear that God works through other people? Yeah, I hear that. And I do hear that God did it for me. A lot of times, too, I hear the, the pressure, peer pressure people put on others to say that God re- relieved their desire to drink. It's like, or God chose to chose me and chose to re- remove my desire to drink. I always think if you're a non-believer in a meeting and somebody says that, you think, well, how come I still have a desire to drink and God chose to remove right. yours and not mine, you know? Right. And it, that's where we have to, um, in AA, we have to say, okay, this is wonderful. This is not a religion. If, a, mm-hmm. if, that, if person A over there believes that God is the one doing this, that's fine. He can have that. But if, if person B thinks that it's the other people in the room that are helping him, that person, they have that right as well. 
Um, and that's the problem that we have in AA today, unfortunately, is that we do have these these dogmatists on both sides, both sides, who say that it's got to be this way and the only way, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't I don't mind people saying that they believe God did it for them. I just don't like it when they say when they peer pressure other people or make it sound like exactly. they're not having the right experience if it wasn't, you know. When they start speaking to right. people, that's that's where my cackles get up a little bit. No, same here. And I've had that happen to me, actually. I've been, um, you know, bef- before I got started with this, uh, our group here in Kansas City, I, you know, I went to meetings and I, I started talking about how, I, I remember one particular meeting, we were talking just about this, how at certain times there'll be no human power who can um, help you. And I said, well, um, human power is all I got. <laughs> and so far it's been working pretty good, you know, mm-hmm. and um after I said that, I swear to God, almost every other person had something to say to me about that, explaining how um, there has to be something other than human power. Um, they were just, I mean, they wouldn't just accept that my, that that for me, that's not true. So because it's in the book, it had to be true, and I had to believe what they believed, and that's that's right. that's the problem. That's why I started this. That's why we started this group in Kansas City because um, that kind of thing is is dangerous, and it shouldn't happen in AA. Oh yeah, and especially at meetings, uh, my old home group around here. Sometimes the meeting will just turn into it's just basically church, and it's you yeah. have to have a higher power, or else you're just not going to make it here. And when yeah. that starts getting repeated, like share after share after share, and um, you know, yeah. people like me in that group, okay, so I kind of have a little leeway, but once in a while I'll speak up and I'll go, well, hang on a second, let's not discount the fact that we're all here for each other, I say, because if all we're going to do is talk about how God's done this and God's done that, and here's what my higher power does, you know, we should be upstairs in this church, not down here in the basement. I mean, there's no exactly. need for this meeting if that's all we're going to talk about. So from my secular perspective now, um, step one is basically I admit that I have a problem. I admit that I'm an alcoholic, that um, I, had, I have a problem. That's basically yeah. it. Um, now, I don't think that these steps are just taken all the time by themselves, one, just one isolated from all the others. Because you, once you make that admission – you almost have to come to believe that something's going to help you. If you're, I mean, if you go to AA, you've already come to believe that something can help you. You might not have decided it's AA yet, but you believe there's got to be help. And I think that's what step two is. Yeah, I can get behind that. I'll, I'll say, too, step one sets you up nicely for it. They kind of roll together. It's like admit you got a problem and basically that you couldn't do it of your own accord. Um, and like you said... It's always interesting the wording of the step step two too because it doesn't really sound like a step you take. It sounds like something that happens to you. Exactly. And I look at it as as a result of me going to those meetings when I was first on probation. I came to believe that there was something about AA or something about the power of meeting with other people. And I'll just say in a generic human sense, the power of connecting with other people and talking openly and honestly for me for the first time in my life where I heard other people talking about themselves in a way that was not um, so, I mean, I guess I heard a lot of it was ego-based, but um, people were more self-deprecating. They were admitting their faults. You know, I think Mm -hmm. in society today, I felt like I was always walking around like a failure 
And like, I was the only one who was scared about something or fearful about something. And when I, the good meetings I was at when I was early in AA, there were people sharing openly and honestly about how they felt in what most people would term negative ways. I didn't see it as that. It was them being emotionally vulnerable and honest to where I could hear that you are not alone. And that part of my pretending all those years to think I had everything figured out and play the roles I played in my life and always trying to look the good part, that was part of the problem. Now I come in there and I hear people talking openly and honestly about how they felt. And yep. I came to believe that there was a benefit to doing it. Yep. That's how I feel. And I and I think you're right. Um, even the literature says that the first two steps are acceptance steps. Um, it's only the it's the third step where that requires action on our part, it says in the literature anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I, I believe that's correct, too, that the first, these are things that happen to us, that there are experiences in our life. You know, we, we get to the point where we we admit we can't take it anymore and we come to believe that something can help us, that we can't do it on mm-hmm. our own, that we need help, basically. Um, well, I think from a secular standpoint, too, I think they make more sense as they roll together if you take out the God thing. Like, no, admit, I think they do. It on, yeah, admit you can't do it on your own. Come to believe that there's some benefit to being a part of this AA thing. Make a decision to do the AA deal. You know, otherwise they don't connect that well together. Well, come to believe yeah. that God will do it. Okay, uh, make a decision and, to trust God. Okay, I don't. It's just I don't know. And if you are an atheist like I am, they mean so much more to you as a person as when when you can interpret those in your own way. Because when I, as an atheist, if if I have to put God in there, it's not. It, it does. It makes no sense. It it it, it ruins it for me. But if I have the freedom to think about it as people who I can care about, who are in the room with me, are helping me, and are my higher power, it's 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 more beautiful, it's more powerful, it's more real, it's something I can understand and relate to, and I need that. Now, maybe the religious guy has to have God, and for them, if it's not God it's no good, you know, and for them that, you know, so that's fine. They should have that right. But that's mm-hmm. unfortunately the way that step is worded, you know, and, and I know that this was, they, they thought they were doing us a favor, but came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, so power I greater than ourselves is capitalized. <laughs> so we know it's yeah, God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it, it's, uh, the reason I believe in any kind of step work at all and that I find the steps valuable is because of what I learned as a counselor and what I what I believe in the steps to be therapeutic as a part of an, a human experience. And again, I, I don't want to bash the God people, but yeah. from a therapeutic standpoint, my only concern for people when they're so crazy about God is that sometimes it seems like they dismiss the human and they almost right. stay as alone and solo in their belief as they were as a practicing alcoholic. And so, that yeah. again, I'm not God's spokesperson, but I would imagine if a God exists, he wants us to learn to love and lean on each other and, and, and participate in each other's lives and connect with each other because that that is the secret of to how AA works, I believe. it's Some people say it's the spiritual, it's the God, it's the what. I mean, to me, it's just almost the number one thing that works is the community. Right. And, you know, when I was... Um... First working the steps, I never had a strong belief in God. I was never a religious person at all. 
I, in fact, I never was religious until I got into AA, and AA became my religion. I totally had nothing to do with God. But anyway, I got into AA, and I and I I I tried to make God work, and I and I and um, that kind of convoluted things for me because um, all of a sudden I'm in this mystical realm that I don't really understand, and I went through that for 25 years, and then when I shook that off. That mystical stuff for me, it was totally freeing, and the steps really came to life. And then they, they, I could see the therapeutic benefit from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we have to have that freedom to interpret the, those in our way. So, well, and I don't think it, it's not fair to say that we, we're, everybody does. I think you know, I've got a dogmatist in my life in AA that I really get into some hardcore debates with sometimes, and he'll constantly say in meetings. This book doesn't need your interpreting. It needs your doing. Well, you know what? We all come from different places. We all come from different experiences. We grew up in different places. That's going to affect how we view what we read. If you hand yeah. somebody, gosh, even any textbook, which I do not I do not believe that Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, is a text. Right. I mean, that's what right. people call it sometimes, but it's, but it's not. you can't help but bring your own interpretation to it. And I think AA is far better when we each bring our interpretation to it. Otherwise, why don't we just read the book at each other in each meeting? Yeah. I gain no, the... so much from other people sharing their interpretation and viewpoint and where they're coming. I get a more yeah. well-rounded understanding of myself and so many other things in this program. Yeah, I hear more nowadays than I ever used to that the big book tells us precisely how we recover. And maybe it says that in there somewhere. I can't re- and I think it does. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really the spirit of the book. The book was written mm-hmm. um as a as a storybook. It was the story of the peop the first people in AA who recovered telling mm-hmm. others how how they did it, what their experience was, sharing their experience. And they tried the best they could to use the language as suggestive type language and not directive language, saying that this is just a suggestion. You, you don't, you know, you, you know, you're free to do or not do whatever you want to do. They tried to have it that way, but unfortunately, th- there's a lot of contradictions in the book. And then there's other other places where where you know we must, and and there's a lot of um, heavy kind of stuff. Also, actually, well, you're twelve by twelve. Yeah, there is you're a little kinder to them than I am, but I know I know you probably have to be a little bit. I don't I don't think they tried that hard. I, well, I think they it was it's like uh, rigidity, 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 dogma, dogma. You must or you perish. Oh, by the way, this is all just suggested. We don't really know a whole lot. <laughs> you must do this. You know, I gosh, I was reading a tradition the other night that said uh, you know it was like our book contains no must, only you ought. And basically, right. we try not to do that. And then three sentences later, it said, we must live by spiritual principles or else we perish. Right. And I'm like, what did you say just three sentences ago? It was like, man. So when the big book was written, what, Bill was sober for like five years, right? Something like that? Well, pr- four years? Probably anywhere from two to four years while they were doing the whole process. Yeah. So, and they were fresh from the Oxford group. So they were all... You know, they were all, um, most of them, except for the few atheists, they were all very much um, into this God. They all loved God. Mm -hmm. And I think they even read the Bible and stuff um, during their meetings. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, when they were coming up with this program, they wanted to kind of distance themselves from the Oxford group. And they also wanted it to be open to both Protestants and Catholic. Because back then in the 1930s, Protestants and Catholics were like, I mean, totally, I mean, they just didn't mix. You know, they they couldn't they couldn't go to services together. I mean, it was just it was more of a divide than there is now. 
and I think that when they were when they were crafting the program, they were trying to make it more suitable for people of all denominations rather than they were the believer and the non-believer. Mm-hmm. We only had a couple of people like Hank and um, Hank Parkhurst and Jim Burwell who were on the atheist side, and so they didn't. We didn't really. I don't think there was a real strong contingent of atheists. Now there are some no. historians that there might correct me, but I don't think we had a very good voice. So we have just a it, where they tried to compromise with us. They they further beat us up with the with the uh, religious stuff. Oh, for sure. And I would imagine if somebody in the Oxford group read their text, they probably thought it was blasphemous and just so liberal, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they were trying. I think that they were trying to be very liberal and open. I maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I think they made that effort. I but it doesn't succeed in the 21st century. Maybe it was groundbreaking stuff in 1939. But in 2016, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's possible. I I think, I don't know. I think also Bill probably just got carried away. We know he was an egomaniac like a lot of us, and he's also a salesperson. So, yeah, he was. I mean, it's. And they wanted to sell that book. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, anyway, so we come to the step two, and. When I very first saw that step for the first time, okay, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, I immediately had problems with it because um, even though they told me later that that power greater than myself could be anything I wanted to, I knew right away that I had to deal with God. And secondly, the insanity part kind of gave me pause. And for me, the insanity part was very difficult because of um, a background of uh, mental illness in my family, and it was just a real – Besides having a drinking problem, to also have to deal with somehow being mentally ill was very, very, very um, difficult for me to have to come to terms with. Um, so I did that step really gave me a lot of problems. So when I when I very first approached that step, I didn't know what to make of it. Now the way I see it, it's just that I came to believe that I could be helped by mm-hmm. AA. But back then, it totally stumped me. And what I had, what I did, the meetings that I went to. We read from the 12 and 12 all the time. We read from the big book all the time. And somewhere in one of the, either the big book or the 12 and 12, it says something that, that as soon as the beginner expresses even a willingness to believe, we assure him that he's on his way. So I started doing that. I went to meetings. Anytime I spoke, I said, I'm willing to believe that God can help me, or that I the power greater myself, whatever. And that's what I thought I was doing with that step. But the insanity part finally clicked with me, too, when I was reading about the guy that would jump um, in front of fast-moving trolleys, and they compared that to alcoholism. And it did make sense to me that mm-hmm. in my case, I was repeatedly trying to get some control over my alcoholism and never could but kept trying anyway. So that was the insanity yep. for me. Yeah. It's almost like they're willing – they're adding a little bit more to first step. Well, also admit that you're insane, you know. Yeah. But I'm with you yeah. at the uh, – you know, we, the old cliche that you're in meetings all the time that makes me grip my teeth anymore about insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting right. results. But that really did help me earlier in sobriety. It was, yeah, I could yeah. look back. I was I was playing with fire over and over, and I was expecting something different to occur. This time will be different. This time I'll just keep it to four or six drinks, and then that became nine, and then 12, and then 18, and then Lord knows what. But, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and of course, insanity really, is not a medical term anymore. I don't know if it was back then, but now it's not. Yeah, it's a pretty strong word. 
And I agree with what you said about it. Just I came to believe that being a part of AA could help me. That's just, uh, yep. that's when I and all this stuff. It all makes sense looking backwards to me. I could honestly say yes, I was working the steps, but was I really sitting down and doing it in a formal way, hardcore right mm-hmm. at first? Well, kind of, but kind of not. But right. I look back now, and I look back as I stayed in AA. People don't like to hear this sometimes when I say it, but when I stayed in AA and kept sticking around, the steps kind of happened to me. At some point, yeah. I came to believe AA could help. Then I made a decision to stick around AA. And then I just kind of, I mean, I did do a fourth and fifth step, and I have done multiple. Yeah. But I, I just kind of, as part of that process, I just started taking a good hard look at myself. I started yep. understanding my resentments and my sources of it. And it's not always just some people need the formal structure of it, but to me, it almost describes what happened to me organically as a part of staying in AA. Absolutely. My total experience as well. I, and I came to realize that as I got into the program and I and I tried to get into the books and, and to somehow work it from an intellectual understanding how they did it back in the 30s, trying to do it that way. And then, then, then coming to realize that, hey, this is stuff that has happened to me. This is stuff that I've – these are experiences that I've had in my life, and, and I recognize them as that. Those first two steps were just experiences that I had. That's all they were. Mm-hmm. And in a way, even the third step is partly an experience. Do you think we yeah, should go into third absolutely. step? <laughs> okay. Because well, in the third sure step – go ahead. Oh, I had a few more thoughts. I was kind of Go going ahead. through the twelve by twelve a little bit on the second uh, on the second step, and oh, yeah. you know, there's a one part in there where uh, Bill Wilson says, "Religion says there is proof of a God. Oh, the agnostic yeah. says there's no way to prove God, and the atheist says they have proof that God doesn't exist." And that's that's oh. where Bill really lost me in that step. It's like oh, as an God. atheist or an agnostic, I. My belief is everyone is agnostic in a philosophical sense because it's not provable. I mean, we kind of know it's not provable or else it'd just be a fact. And I'm an atheist because I choose not to believe in God. I don't say I have proof there is no God. I haven't been – it hasn't been proven to me that there is a God. But I do do like to engage in the idea of living in the mystery of life and what's to come. And I feel like that's more of an open-minded – uh, willingness place to be than just to be a dogmatist that says there is a God, and if you're not believing in that, you're you're doing it wrong. You picked out I, my I think least it's, favorite paragraph of the yeah. twelve and twelve. I um I read that thing for many 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 years and never thought anything of it. But as an atheist, when I finally re- accepted as an atheist, I was at a twelve and twelve meeting, and I read that paragraph when it was my turn. They passed the book to me, and I read that paragraph, and then it was my turn to comment on it, and I said. This is wrong and divisive and unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I was really pissed off. Yeah. And that's how that's I said, that's all it is. It's, I, and I said, yeah, there's I said, atheists don't claim proof. There's no God. And I don't believe that mm-hmm. religious people claim proof that there is a God. Yeah. This is totally well, wrong. Don't. And they're putting us these categories unnecessarily divisive. Yeah. Well, you can imagine how the rest of the group felt. about that. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> You're so, uh, unwilling to surrender, John. So that was the last twelve and twelve meeting I'd ever been to. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one guy actually uh, told was, me that there is proof of God. He told me. <laughs> oh yeah, I used to be that person way back in the day. I think. Oh really? Well, he, he I put, was, was it Thomas Aquinas I was a or something? For a short period. Yeah. Um, 
there was one other line in there too that um, it talked about how if you're not if you don't believe in God, you're practicing self sufficiency. And I just have to degree, disagree with that line so much. Again, it's more of that alcoholic, all or nothing thinking, yeah, um, acting out because. Just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean I'm just practicing self-sufficiency solely. Correct. Now, look, I I believe in being empowered and being a, a you know self-sufficient in certain ways, but right. I also know that that emotionally and as a way of living, I don't I don't live self-sufficiently. I no. I lean on Thank my you. wife when I need to. She leads on me. I have friends I lean on. So, I mean, I yep. think you can just be just as big of an egocentric jerk. Uh, believing in God and denying other people in your life as you can being some atheist who's a dogmatist that runs around. That's right. Shooting down believers' arguments all the time. Yeah. People um, have to understand this about the atheists, I think. Um, for us, we're not, we're, not, we're not saying that we're self-sufficient, that we're doing this on our own intellect and our own resources. We're, we're our part of it. I do believe that I, mm-hmm. I have some credit to to give myself for this. But I go to AA meetings, you know, I, mm-hmm. I go to a therapist, I go to a psychiatrist, you know, mm-hmm. I, I rely on friends. I am not self-sufficient when it comes to my mental health and my recovery from alcoholism. I right. totally rely on the, uh, the help of other people, you know. Um, right. There is no God involved for me, <laughs> but, that, but, but that doesn't mean that I'm self-sufficient. It doesn't. Right. Well, and, and that also this, doesn't this, mean either that self-sufficiency – it also doesn't mean that I can't give myself credit. I think it's, I think I can say that, yes, I have done these things for myself, yeah. you know, and I, th- and I think that that's okay to say. So there's got to be some well, balance I, there with, with that. Well, and I'll say what you just said, too. From a therapeutic uh, perspective, it is really important if you're working from a client, if you're a counselor or a therapist, that you help the person put put the dots together to realize that what they are doing differently is what's helping promote the change in their life. And so, yes, so maybe this is too much of a mind bender, but part of being mm-hmm. a self-sufficient person maybe is part of getting out of yourself and helping yourself be self-sufficient by leaning on other people. I don't know, maybe I'm playing yep. too much of a word game. but it's, Absolutely. It's, you if you, yep. you have to, to put those dots together and realize that your life is changing because of what you're doing, you know, and it starts with not yep. drinking. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm just saying I'm just doing this all on my own, but I right. do think it's okay to give ourselves a little bit of credit and realize, hey, I've done a lot to change. A lot of people have helped me along the way, and that's been great. But if I'm not on board, it's never going to happen. Yeah, I think it's important because some of us have self-esteem issues when we come into the program. I know I did. And I, I needed every once in a while to recognize that, you know what, I'm doing something good for my life. I'm doing something good for myself. I'm, I'm making an effort to change. I'm going to meetings. I'm doing, I'm, I'm really, you know, working hard. And, and I, I want, I think everybody in AA should recognize that. I, I've, I've been to too many meetings where new people beat themselves up because they think they're not doing the steps right or something. No, don't beat yourself up. You're, you are in an AA meeting. You you are trying to help yourself and give yourself credit for that. Yeah. Well, and if anybody struggles, some of the dogmatists immediately will say, well, maybe you left this off your fourth step, or maybe you're not yeah. praying enough. For the, it's, and it's good to check those things out and be like, well, am I doing what I need to do? But some of it is just so much self-blame. That's probably why, when you think about it, Ben, we need to go to traditional meetings, because... You're right. That does happen, and that's what that's yeah. that's why people 
feel that way because someone tells them that. Well, it's all set up to protect. It's all set up to protect the sanctity of the program. Like if you do it perfectly, you will not drink. Well, I bet bet if I ate cow chips perfectly and religiously, I probably wouldn't drink too if it was just the thing I did. But it's 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 somewhere in there. You have to find a little bit of. self-care and concern for yourself and start being your own friend to where you don't beat yourself up all the time. And I think sometimes these dogmatic meetings are just perpetuated guilt and shame sometimes. Yeah. And I even had had that uh, myself. Um, The first, gosh, it's hard to believe Ben, I went through this, but I would say the first seven, 10 years, 10 years, yeah, 10 years of my sobriety, um, I I, I was uh, suffering from untreated depression. Um, mm-hmm. I would not get help because um, I had people telling me not to um, rely right. on antidepressants, and uh, there, were, there were that was a tough ten years. Um, and I would beat myself up because I didn't think I was um, I was getting out of myself enough. I didn't think I was um, doing the steps well enough. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that was really bad. <laughs> that would, but that, well, that's how I felt at the time. Well, and how terrible to say that to someone. I know, John, you've shared that your mom had mental health issues, too. So it's yeah. like it could be a genetic thing in your family. I had an issue oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. A guy basically just blatantly said in the meeting that it's not, you know, okay to be on stuff. And you've got to watch out for those doctors. They'll put you on everything and this and that. We were specifically talking about depression in the meeting. And him and I got mm-hmm. into it afterwards. And I've I've gotten into it with this guy before. And I said, you know, AA doesn't have a position on that. So why do you no, talk it like it's it's like your AA and that that you know this is the way AA believes because it's not true. And I it is not when true. I came back when I came back from our conference out in Santa Monica, I talked to him and he was talking about, well, as long as nobody changes the steps. And I go, well, some people are talking about they've got their own interpretations of the steps. And he goes, oh no 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 no. You are going to get people killed. And he starts poking me in the chest. And I said, look, back off, buddy. But anyway, so after that, then when he did this at this meeting the other day, I go, you accuse me of getting people killed by just telling people that they have the right to interpret the steps how they want. But you're going to make a comment like that about not being on antidepressants and other things. I go, in your dogmatic language, I go, is it possible that you've gotten some people killed or chased some people out of the room and they maybe have kept on this with because of your dogmatism mm-hmm. and you tell them not to be on pills? I go, I've spent time as a counselor. I go, there's people who've told me that they didn't feel like they could be in a certain meeting because someone told them yeah. they couldn't be on anything. And I go, those people are on things because it's the only thing that allows them to be in a crowd of people or not feel so yeah. depressed that they can't leave the house. It's, uh, I don't know. It's incredibly that, dangerous. It's it's oh. it's it. Um, these people if would have blood on their hands if somebody died. Um, and also, um, people don't read our pamphlets. The AA pamphlets aren't read that that much. But those pamphlets are conference approved literature. And there's a pamphlet about um, outside issues or medication or something. And it clearly yeah. states that we do not tell people not to take medication. We do not give right. that kind of advice. You know, that's not what AA is. So for new people out there that might be listening to this podcast, if you're just getting to AA and someone is telling you not to take an antidepressant, go online to AA.org. Look at the pamphlets. That's not what AA is. Nobody should be telling you that. That's totally not AA. Um, It it does happen in AA meetings, though, but it's not it should not be happening. 
that's one thing that'll anyway, get me to digress on that say something <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, it's uh, that really gets my hair up when somebody's. Oh, me too. Me. me too. Well, it's almost like but, you know, it kind of goes with that step, too, because, you know, it talks about insanity and everything and God restores us to sanity. And so, the, you you know, we come to believe and this is where I was, you know, when I was my first 10 years in program, there's got to be a spiritual solution. To my to my emotional and mental disorders, besides just alcoholism. Yeah. And that 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 I, I, I know now is wrong. I but. almost feel like that spiritual solution is just another way of taking a drug to feel better. Like if you look at what addiction and alcoholism is, it's almost, it's like a disease of instant gratification. I know how to feel well right now. I can take a drink. It'll make me feel better for a short while. But the process of recovery is slow and ongoing and takes itty bitty little incremental steps towards getting better. So if, if I just lean on this whole dogmatic idea of a God that's magically curing me every waking second, it's like the pink cloud. It just, I don't think it can last. The true changes that, that take place in our life, be it uh, diet and exercise and losing weight slowly over time and things that work ongoing, they all take place at very, very, very small increments over time and by staying involved and in doing whatever deal it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. And yep. That's what I've found. And sometimes the God thing is the magic quick fix for people right away and Again, if that works for people, that's great. But um, there's some kind of slow growth that's got to take place in there as well. Yeah. And um, I think that's, some, that's part of what bothers me about things that drive people away from meetings is that we need that safe place to be able to go and slowly grow. Yeah. And if it's if it's more and more difficult to want to be somewhere, I, I don't. This is just me because of the way I think. But I go to I tend to go to agnostic and atheist meetings, mm-hmm. um, and I don't. I don't necessarily want to leave when they're over. The meeting runs over 15, 30 minutes. I'm like, oh, awesome. But if I go I to those meetings and it's super dogmatic, I'm like looking at the clock like I can't wait. To I know. Out. And everybody else seems that way too, even the people who like that stuff. I know. I just feel it's, like this whole – our meetings are just sometimes too, just a little slight change in tone that just make it just a little bit more tolerable for everybody sometimes. Yes. I love our meetings so much, and I, I had the same experience. I, I I am comfortable in AA really for the for the first time in uh, all my time in the program. I, I I did not know how how good it could be, how how wonderful the experience could be in AA until I um st- st- helped start this uh, We Agnostics group in Kansas City. Um, yeah. It's a completely different thing. Now, one thing though, I think that makes a big difference for us. We don't use the the literature. We don't use the big book and the twelve and twelve. It just doesn't work for us. Now, some people from other groups might think that's weird, and that we actually bring in outside literature. We're allowed to do that, but yeah. that conference approved literature doesn't work for us. And so, what we need to do? I got a phone. Oh, let me turn this thing off. Oops. Okay. All right. So anyway, yeah, the conference approved literature is the problem here <laughs> because yeah. it was written back in the the, thir- the 30s and the 50s, and um, it was written at a time when Bill hasn't completely evolved. Um, so we're kind of stuck in that time, and it gives the people that want to be dogmatic about the program the ammunition to, to do that. Everything is about God. The, it's mm-hmm. lopsided. It, it needs to be more balanced. Leave God in there for the people who want God. But makes place for the secular person too, and it, our literature doesn't do that. 
so I think what what helps with our meetings is we don't have that that baggage of that literature. I mean, we just we we have when we have a secular reading, it doesn't it's not pro God or anti God. It's it's a secular reading, and then we and when we go around and share, we share our experience with each other. You know, and some people mm-hmm. for some people it is spiritual, for some people it's yeah. not. But it's that literature, and one of these days we 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 the. If AA is really going to thrive, we've got to get new conference-approved literature that addresses the program of recovery and does so in a way that uh, balances the um, secular person's viewpoint as well as the religious person's viewpoint. be honest with you, Ben. Yes. They could actually do without the religious viewpoint altogether and let the people do that in church and just have a secular viewpoint in AA. But I think that might be a little controversial to do that. But um, Oh, for sure. Well, if anything, this is, I see this little, um, uh, not a movement, but, you know, the agnostic atheists in free thinking meetings as being more back to basics than even the back to basics meetings. You know, but if you're we're really back to basics, we're just alcoholics getting together to share our experience, strength, and hope. Whereas we're really back to basics, basics too, because, you know, when they first started, they didn't have a book, so they were going to write no. a book. And yep. that's how we are. We're like, you know what? We these books don't. We need to write a book. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty basic. Yeah. Oh, I had one more thing on step two where I was reading through the twelve and twelve, and it's like mm-hmm. uh, the bill calls the atheist the bewildered one. It's, it just yeah. kind of made me chuckle. Yeah. I, I feel like with I'm kind of like you. I when I came in, I wasn't a believer, but I've definitely even moved further down the spectrum. Um, of my non-belief since being mm-hmm. in AA, and part of that, I can I contribute I I attribute to going to AA. It's allowed me the freedom to be myself and understand that it's okay to be a non-believer. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, meanwhile, I have to accept that other people are believers, but it's right. I'm much more comfortable in my skin um, as a part of this recovery process. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, and much more so now than. Uh... Than I was, you know, with the secular groups. Yeah. Well, we've talked for an hour, so we might want to save step three for another conversation. Um, there is a lot more involved with step two, because when you start, when you when you really look at when, okay, when we step two essentially is all it is is an experience where we come to believe that we could be helped. But Bill goes into a lot of detail in the in the in the uh, twelve and twelve about coming to believe in God and why you should believe in God. Mm-hmm. And how easy it is to believe in God, and it's too yeah. bad that he did that, but that's what he did. I have no use for that um, step two and the twelve and twelve. There might be—I don't know—is there anything in there that's worthwhile for us? I don't, I'm not sure. You know, he talks <laughs> about having a truly open mind, um, which okay. again, uh, for me, that led to non-belief. I mean, to yeah. have a truly open mind, I didn't feel like I had to believe what my parents taught me to believe. You know, and yeah. he talked about yeah. stop fighting. You know. I, I can I can believe in that too. So I need to not be in such a fighting mentality. And there's also something in there where he talks about there are innumerable paths to this thing. Yeah, and you know the self sufficiency thing that we talked about before. Okay, when like when I was drinking, uh, actually before I got into AA altogether for everything in my life, I never asked for help for anything. That's just the way I was. Mm-hmm. I'd never asked for help. No matter what kind of problem I had in my life, I tried to deal with it on my own. I wouldn't even tell people I had a problem. That's the way I lived. Right. And it, that wasn't working for me. So right. in AA, I had to learn that it's okay to ask for help. Right. 
um, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and, and in a sense, that is part of step two. It's just it's, it's knowing that I need help and it's okay to ask for help. Um, I would say that's I have, completely step two. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's that universal sense of that need of that. It's, we always relate it to drinking or this and that in AA, but it's, it's more, for lack of a better word, I'll say spiritual, but I don't like to say that either. But it's, uh-huh. it's a universal thing to need to get outside ourselves and know when to ask for help, and there's nothing wrong with it. Yep. And it applied to everything in my life. Um Eventually, with depression, I needed to get help for that. I couldn't. I couldn't deal with it on my own. I, my own resources failed me with depression. I had to. I had to go to a doctor and actually get a prescription. Um, yep. All kinds of things. Um, I had someone help me with a resume once. You know. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, you know, I, I I do ask for help nowadays. I don't try to do it all on my own. I'm okay. I'm okay admitting that I can't do something, or right. that I failed at something. For example, it's okay to say I failed. Um, Isn't it I, that amazing that we would? Of... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. Isn't I... it amazing yeah. that we'd rather beat our head into the wall and continually fail at something than, by God, for admit to somebody that we don't know and that they could maybe yeah. do it better? You know, like some some things around the house, I don't know how to do. I need to hire a guy to come in and fix something or build something. Right. But like the right. old attitude and the old me would be like, oh, no, Ben, you should know how to do that because, of course, your belief is every man knows how to do that stuff. Right. And maybe I'd whack away at a wall and trash it and make way more work to eventually have to have somebody come in before I'd admit it. I mean, I know that's pride, but that's what we're getting at here. It is. It is. I never wanted anybody to know that that I had some sort of a weakness, that there was something I couldn't figure out, that, you know, it's ridiculous um, mm-hmm. that I was that way. But that that is how I was. Um, to my credit, I was pretty young. I hadn't been around that long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, this is an well, interesting this conversation. Really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to pick up on step three next time. So when, whenever you're available, if it's next week or sometime in the next few days or whatever, uh, maybe next week, we can get together, talk about that. Sounds great, John. Thanks for sharing your perspective, too. I really gain and learn a lot. Just uh, anytime you and I have these little conversations, whether it's on audio or not, you know, it's it always helps me. Yeah, me too. It's, it's it was really interesting. I got a lot out of this. I get a lot out of what what you have to say because um, sometimes I can get sometimes I can get a little uh, judgmental and critical of um, people um, that don't agree with me. And you always kind of bring me back to re- remembering, hey, take it easy with those people. That's just where they are right now. They they probably need what they're doing. You know, we just have different experiences. So I'm trying well, to remember if, that. If- if that's the case, then it's a it's a case of the teacher needing what he le- needs to learn himself because I'm not as good at doing that in my own personal life. I need I need to work on that too. Okay. All right, my friend, you have a good day. I will uh, talk yeah. to you soon, and next time we'll be talking about step three. Sounds great, John. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Ben will be back in the very near future to talk about step three. And we'll have other interesting guests to feature as well. So stay tuned. We look forward to speaking with you again very soon.